Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Before we get to today's episode, I have an important and very exciting update. I am thrilled to announce that this episode has a sponsor, World Business Chicago. The fifth annual Chicago Venture Summit is officially sold out. 450 plus VCs and startup founders, investors, and innovators are connecting over the three-day flagship venture capital conference led by World Business Chicago, the City of Chicago, and sponsors. Follow World Business Chicago on LinkedIn and Twitter for news, announcements, and data from this week's summit, and for news and announcements from the city's tech, innovation, and venture ecosystem. I cannot thank the folks from World Business Chicago enough for all the outstanding work they do in the Chicago ecosystem and for their sponsorship of our show. Troy, thanks so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to start first with a Ted Lasso quote that I saw on your Twitter timeline. So I got to know, I'm assuming you're a big Ted Lasso fan. Well, it's funny because Ted Lasso came up in a conversation, I don't know, six months ago, and I didn't know who it was. And everybody on the Zoom call was like, you don't know Ted Lasso. And so my wife and I started watching it. And at first it was sort of sappy. And I don't know, I've gotten sort of sucked in. And so I have to admit, I'm eagerly anticipating the next uh, episode. So I do enjoy it. It does. It just, it sucks you in. I don't know how to describe it, but it's the best feel good show I've ever seen in my life. Like that and a glass of wine is easily the best way to end a day, no doubt. Yep. No, it's good. So I'd love to um, talk first about your background and your path to VC. Yeah, I'm sure it's a story you've told many times before, but you know, I know my, our listeners would, would love to hear about you know, how you came to VC and some of the you know, successful stops you made along the way. So I am totally an accidental venture capitalist. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of my career, I didn't even know what venture capital was. I have a very distinct memory of, I don't know, I was probably six, seven years out of college and I was had this long commute and I was talking to my sister and I said, you know, I really like this startup thing. I'd done one startup, I'd sold the business and, and I was helping some other folks. And I'm like, there is a time, I could picture a time where I'd like invest in a couple of startups and I'd help them and I'd coach them along and it it would be awesome. And she said, oh, you mean like a venture capitalist? And I said, well, what's that? And I had no idea what VC was. It's a true story. That's incredible. So you kind of approached it almost from the bottoms up. You felt like there was an ideal role, an ideal sort of occupation for you. And it sort of sprung from that. That's amazing. But I know that you have, you know, you're a VC with operating experience. You are an entrepreneur yourself. I guess what I'm curious about is, you know, sometimes on the show, we have ex-operators, we have people who've been in finance their whole career. What do you think your time as an operator gave you that you still take with you every day into, you know, into your VC job? You know, how, how did it really inform your decision making, you know, day at a time in VC? Yeah. So I believe that as an entrepreneur, first of all, I think of myself as an entrepreneur even today. I mean, I think you're always an entrepreneur. And so whether it was that I was starting companies or I was starting a VC fund, I'm still an entrepreneur. And in my heart, I think I go walk through the world looking at opportunities. And I'm like, huh, I wonder how that works. I wonder what the cost of acquisition is. I wonder how much they make per customer. I wonder, is that a good business? Would this be a better business? I'm constantly thinking about business in that way. So I have this entrepreneur's mindset, if you will. In terms of what did it 
bring or what did it what do I bring with it to venture? You know, I think as you're raising money as an entrepreneur and you're thinking about who are the people on your side or on your team, the investors that are investing into your company, I think of it very much. I don't make a lot of sports analogies, but I think about it very much as building a football team as distinct and different from a basketball team. So let me explain. So in the earliest stage of your entrepreneurial journey, when you're building your company, you typically have three, four or five people. And it's sort of like a basketball team. In a basketball team, anybody can shoot the ball. Anybody can take the ball up the court. Anybody can block the ball. You have slight preferences. There's one person who's probably the center and people have names like guards and forwards, but anybody can do anything on the court. But in football, a little bigger, 11 players, and I'm talking about American football, not Ted Lasso's football, but in football, you have a lot of specialization, right? You have a quarterback who passes. You have people who block, people who catch, people who run, people who kick. And when you're building your team as an entrepreneur in a startup, and particularly when you're thinking about investors you're bringing into the team, I believe you want some you want diversity along many dimensions. But in this particular dimension I'm talking about is diversity of skill set and background. I think you want an investor who is an operator, like most like all of the GPs at math. I think you want an investor who is a financial expert. I think you want someone who's a deal person, someone who's a connector, someone who's a, because you want to round out the skills so that you have all of those talents or all of those resources on your team. And so I think it's an opportunity. And we as operators fill a very specific void. And that is being there for the entrepreneur when there are difficult times. So I love it when an entrepreneur has a problem and I am the first phone call. Like that to me is success because that means that he or she trusts me, he or she respects my opinion and that we can work together to help them solve their problems. And they realize that as an investor, I'm there side by side with the founders in the trenches, helping them build a better business. I, I heard this expression the other day that, you know, within the world of investors, some are squeezers and some are builders, right? A squeezer is someone who wants to get as much out of the deal as they possibly can. And a builder, that's what we are. We believe that the path to success is building bigger companies and building better companies. And that's not just building the company, but building the entrepreneurs. And as someone who has walked in those shoes before, I feel like we are able to do a great, a, a really good job of that. And where do you think, and I guess this kind of gets already into the state of VC, you know, that's something I wanted to talk to you about, but I think we're, we're, we're on the topic now. Where do you think, you know, do you think there's a place for the Tiger Globals, you know, the passive investors? How do you sort of speak to entrepreneurs when they're asking you, hey, you know, there's this passive investor, he just wants to write me a check and, and let me do my thing. And that sounds great to me. I don't want him sort of, you know, another kind of person meddling or, or asking questions. What's kind of your view on sort of the past, the rise of passive investing almost in venture capital, especially spearheaded by Tiger? So I think it's part of the portfolio of investors, right? So while you may want to have, you know, operators on your board and you may want to have some finance, some people who are good at financial engineering, you also really want to have some people with some deep pockets. <laughs> and if those deep pockets don't come with, you know, operating experience and financial engineering experience, but they're just really nice deep pockets, that's okay if you already have the other two, right? What I don't like in particular is I see some early stage companies who say, oh, I don't really want to have a board of directors. I don't really want to have that investor who's going to be heavy handed. I want to run my company because I know I can do it better, blah, blah, blah. 
And the analogy that I make for them, it's another sort of sports analogy. I apologize, Matt. But the analogy that I make for them is that, you know, Matt, if you just found out that you qualified for the Olympics in the marathon, you got a choice. You're going to go out and train by yourself or you're going to find yourself a coach. Your life is going to be easier if you go train by yourself. I guarantee it. I also guarantee it that while your life will be more difficult, your training will be more difficult if you have a coach, that your likelihood of success will be significantly higher. And so there's sort of a fork in the road for me. Like if you want to have a lifestyle business and you want to run your own thing and you want to be an entrepreneur, and there are many definitions of entrepreneur, that is awesome and fine. But if you want to start raising money and you want to grow a big company to a big exit, your highest likelihood of success is having a coach. And that coach is really another way of talking about having a board of directors, having people that are are helping you set goals, holding you accountable to those goals, helping you get through the difficult times. And that's the role that a really good board of directors plays. And it really bugs me when entrepreneurs are like, no, 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 I, I don't, I don't want a board. I want to do it my way. I want to, like, I just want to, I just want their money. I'm going to put it in a bunch of safe notes so that I don't have to have a board. I don't have equity and I'm just going to grow the company myself. And I think that's a very, that's a perspective that isn't open to input, isn't open to how do we, how do we together, how do we come up with better decisions and how do we, how do we make better decisions and how do we grow a bigger company? So again, though, I want to be really clear. If you want to run the fund, fund the business yourself, run the business yourself, have a, have a business that you're in hundred percent control of and not be beholden to other people. That is totally cool. But as soon as you start taking outside money, that's like the big leagues. And now it's time to have people on your side who can help you through that journey. And hopefully you'll have a mixture of people, including some who've been through it before. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think another area, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, and it, math gets very involved with their companies. You guys are truly active investors. You like to be the first call. And I wonder now with the speed at which deals are happening and just how much capital is flowing into the VC ecosystem, I would imagine for you guys, you're making very concentrated bets every time you invest because you know this is a partnership and you know phone call you know you're one phone call away from sort of jumping right into the trenches with these founders how has this speed to check environment how has it impacted you personally sort of your diligence efforts and how you get comfortable with basically entering these marriages with such shortened time frames nowadays well there are many things to unpack here so first of all let's talk about what covid did right so 18 months ago <laughs> well, I guess 18 months and 10 days ago, we were still working out of an office. That was our last day, March 13th, 2020. And since then, we haven't had an office. We actually gave up our office. Not only we don't go there, we don't have it anymore. And we decided to be fully remote. And what that meant was we were going to have to make decisions about investing in companies without ever having met the companies face to face. You know, we did a lot of this, a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of video. Um, initially, it was hard and making decisions without being able to be in the same room with someone, share a meal with someone, and more importantly, be in their office and their environment. There were many times where we would go do a site visit on a company we were thinking of investing in, and you learned things from being in the office that you never would have thought to ask. It just, oh, what's going on over there? Oh, that's Project XYZ. I didn't even know there was a Project XYZ. Tell me about it, right? And had you not gone to the office, you wouldn't have learned it. And so 
when we're doing everything remotely, we're not learning those same things in the same way. Then compound that with the fact that the expectation of how long it takes to make a decision is has been shortened, right? The Tiger Globals, as you talk about, and it's complicated things. And I don't think we figured it out entirely yet. We have made some decisions too quickly in the last six months. We've made some where we're too slow and the opportunity wasn't there anymore. And we have to figure out how we operate as the world changes, because the world's always going to change. It changed particularly fast on March 13th, 2020. And it has accelerated a lot of things, a lot of which is for the good, right? I think a lot of, well, COVID is a, was a horrible thing. The pandemic was a horrible thing for a lot of people. I'm not saying the pandemic was good, but it accelerated the adoption of technology incredibly fast. Many things happened in a course of a couple of weeks or a couple of months that in normal times would have taken years. And being an investor who invests in the future of technology, that meant there were a lot more opportunities for us. And I think part of the reason you're seeing this quick decision-making is because there's so many opportunities and the world is changing so fast that you, you have this, if there was a trajectory or a timeline of normalcy and you took two months to make a decision on an investment and that whole timeline has been compressed, because of the rapid adoption of technology, guess what? Your time to make a decision has been compressed as well. And we're still figuring it out. I wish I had the answer to that one. Do you see this environment? It's always tough to make these types of predictions and projections, but it's something I just love to pick people's brains about. You know, In the future, do you see sort of a retraction or any kind of slowdown in this market anytime soon? Does it, you know, will it take interest rates rising or, you know, some other kind of existential event? Do you see that in the near term future? And I guess, how are you all at math kind of thinking about this environment in the future? I don't see it in the near term future. Eventually, I think it will slow down somewhat. But, you know, if you take a look, picture, and I don't know if you have the ability to put something on your screen, but if you put pictured a graph of the S&P 500 over the last 15 years, for instance, you know, you'd see a dip for 2008, but basically it's been a, a total ramp. There was a dip right at the beginning of COVID in March and then it popped right back up. And think of all the people who have said stocks are overvalued, stocks are overvalued, stocks are overvalued. I mean, I would not, but I still was playing in the market. You, you can't time a market. And so the best thing we can do as investors is continue to be active in that market. And there will be a time when there may be a correction, but I don't know when it is. I mean, when, when we started the first fund for math in 2014, we really felt the stock market was hot and price and, and startups were overvalued. It's only gone up since then, <laughs> with exception of a little dip in March of 2020. But it's only gone up since then. If we had said, whoa, we're going to time the market, stocks are, think stocks are too high, startups are overvalued, we're going to wait till it calms down. Where would we be today? Right. You know, the entire market has gone up 2x, 3x. I don't know what the numbers are since then. Valuations have gone up. So, you know, there may be a correction, but you can't time the market. We're playing in the market we're, we're in. We're, de we're playing the cards we are dealt today. And if you want to be in the game, you got to play the cards you're dealt. And these are the cards we're dealt today. So that's what we're playing. You talked about, you know, the playing the cards you're dealt. I would love to learn a bit more about the investment committee process at math only because as I understand it, you know, I look at your page, I don't see, you know, junior associates who 
many places are writing the investment memos and and you know pitching companies and you do make concentrated bets and it is is smaller team you know it's you mark dana neil and forgive me if i'm forgetting anybody else elisa christy so it's and christy yeah okay all right i'll give them the shout out in the show notes just for that omission right there straight to their linkedin pages so i would love to hear about kind of the internal process at math and how that works yeah so First of all, we have our core investments. And today our core investments are first checks of one to $2 million. And we are looking for companies. Our thesis is around customer acquisition. As operators, we believe that if you can acquire and retain customers, everything else gets really easy, right? And so we're looking for companies that have an unfair advantage in customer acquisition. And that comes in all kinds of forms, but we're looking for those companies that have that unfair advantage in customer acquisition. So we're not investing in cool technology without a go-to-market plan. We're not investing in cool products. We're not. We're, we're all about customer acquisition and understanding that life cycle. And so that's where we're playing. Now, how does this work? So there is always one of the three general partners, Dana, Mark, or I, who are leading a deal. We've changed for a while. You know, we used to do the Monday morning meeting where we'd bring the whole company, the company in and meet everybody and we do an in-person pitch and, and that worked really well for us. But once we went totally remote, we had to change that. And we experimented, we experimented with bringing someone into our crazy Zoom that we do every Monday for hours. And it's, we found it was pretty disconcerting for the newcomer to be in the room and be getting questions from different boxes on the Brady Bunch and not knowing who to respond to and being, it's just hard to read a room when there isn't a room. And so we've morphed our process to somebody leads it. So if I meet a particular company and I love that company, I will ask Dana to join me in the next meeting. And I'll say, hey, Dana, you know, you're really all about building amazing teams. And I would love you to dig in with these folks about their team, their vision, what they're going to do about diversity, what their plans are, et cetera. And you and I will be on this call together for an hour, an hour and a half, and let's dig in deep on it. And then we'll do that together. And then if that goes well, maybe I'll bring in Mark the next week in one of the meetings and I'll say, hey, Mark, I really want you to talk about vision and future because Mark's really good about vision. And, and, you know, do you have, what is Tell us about your customer and empathy for the customer. Do you actually see things through the customer's eyes? And Mark and I will do that one. Then sometimes we'll bring in, I'll bring in an Elisa, a Neil, a Mert, who isn't on our page yet, but will be by the time this is published and is joining us. And because they each have their areas of expertise as well. And so everybody will get some exposure to the company. And then what we do is we have an investment memo and I will write that investment memo. We have a template. It's about 15 slides, so it covers the critical areas. And we ha- I, it's my job to explain why this is a big market, why these guys are going to win in the market, you know, what their team composition diversity is going to be all about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, customer, unfair advantage in customer acquisition. And then we'll have a rich discussion, but we've all met the entrepreneurs already. And then we'll make a decision, yes or no. And this is, this is the way we've done the last couple and the way we're moving forward. Now, we also have a second kind of investment, which is what we call a Math 100. So the Math 100 is a $100,000 investment. It's always $100,000. It's not negotiable. That's what it is. And it's for an earlier stage company that hasn't yet proven that they have an unfair advantage in customer acquisition. 
but we believe they can get there. We'll only make a math 100 if we believe the company can grow into a math core. If they can't grow into a math core, we won't make the math 100. And then what we do is we'll make that early investment. It's 100K. We'll get to work with the entrepreneurs, hopefully getting them to the point where they're ready for a math core. And now we have an unfair advantage as an investor in making that decision. We'll be a very quick yes or a very quick no because we know the company. We've worked with them. We've had monthly meetings. They've shared their financials, et cetera. Many times we end up stepping up and leading those about half the time when we have the math 100s that turn into math cores we'll lead them. Half the time, someone else will lead them and we'll participate. We're agnostic, whatever's best for the company. But those decisions are made more quickly. We don't have to have the entrepreneurs meet all of the partners and everybody. It's a much quicker process because there's less at risk. When you describe an unfair advantage in customer acquisition, is that in your mind the same as finding product market fit? How do those two sort of concepts uh, fit together? So. They're, they're intertwined a little bit. So I define product market fit as when your company has so much demand for your product that things are starting to break. Let me say this differently. So much demand from profitable customers that things are starting to break. So where you're actually charging your customers a fair price, you're able to make money on it and you have more demand than you need. Now, that's awesome. But when I think about unfair advantage in customer acquisition, what I think about are how are you actually acquiring those customers? So let me give you a couple of examples. So um, one example that comes to mind is a company called CardFlight, which is in our portfolio. They're out of New York. And they make a series of tools for retailers that are around credit card processing for bricks and mortar retailers. So they were very early and they had a um, like a square kind of thing that went on your phone so you could charge like Apple does. Um, square works great, except each square account is each square device is a separate account. So if you're a pizza delivery, a pizza parlor, and you have 10 delivery people, you don't want 10 square accounts. You can't manage that. CardFlight had a great solution. They then produce some other products like a smart terminal. Terminal is that thing that looks like a calculator that you swipe your credit card on. Now picture one that's Android based, touch screen. Right. They have a beautiful, one of the most advanced smart terminals. They have a bigger one that's kind of like Clover with the tablet base. And when we met them, they had about 500 retailers using their product. But instead of going to market by trying to sell the bricks and mortar retailers, what they did was they partnered with the existing sales organizations that were selling into those retailers and had to compete with Clover had to compete with Square, had to compete with those products. And what they did was they gave them the tools to resell. And so today, CardFlight has just short of 100,000 storefronts using their products, but they still only have, I think, three salespeople. There's no way three salespeople could have sold 100,000 locations. The three salespeople sold into big companies like WorldPay and Cayenne and Tesis, and if you know those guys, and they are out reselling the card flight solution. And so it's been a highly leveraged sales organization. And their unfair advantage is that they have thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people who are out selling into their very customers who are carrying a bag that has their product in it every single day at the cost of three salespeople. So that's a good concrete example of an unfair advantage. There are lots of others. 
I would imagine. Yeah. So the, the unfair advantage always comes before product market fit, but it's usually unfair advantage that partially, you know, really gets them to product market fit. I'm curious, did those founders, did they come from the industry? How did they sort of unlock that kind of growth hack? Yeah. So both Derek Webster, who's the CEO and founder, had spent a bunch of time in the credit card processing world before starting card flight. He actually initially started with a, um, the initial business model was very different. It was based on rewards and tapping into credit card processing. And then they pivoted to the, the set of products they have today. And then a bunch of the investors, again, build your team. So he brought on some investors who are deep, deep, deep in the credit card processing world and are still, you know, running companies and investing in companies and big companies in there. And I think that his board help. And when I say his board, I'm excluding myself. I am on his board, but I have no credit card processing experience. I help in other ways, but um, his board has helped immensely, especially in the early days. Now today, Derek is well known in the industry and, you know, is very close with all of the leaders of the big companies now. And, and he's considered a thought leader in the credit card industry, but he's now been at it for seven, eight years. It took a while to get there. He's super sharp. He's great. Got it. Got it. Nope. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. You know, one, one question that came to mind when we were talking about, you know, sort of vetting go-to-market plans of these companies and the plans behind the product. Um, are there any big sort of mistakes that you see first-time founders or just maybe less experienced founders make in their go-to-market strategies? Um, I know it's a general question, but just curious if there's any bits of advice you would offer listeners who are kind of going through the same sort yeah. of strategy. The biggest mistake that I see, and I see it all the time, is what I call the leaky bucket. So you build your product, and I'm talking generally about recurring revenue businesses, SaaS businesses, this is where we play most, but you build your product and you think the answer is, I'm just gonna spend more on marketing and put more people in the top of the funnel. But if you have a churn rate that is too high, varies by industry, I'll make some obnoxious numbers. 10% of your customers churn out every month. You better not have that high, that's, that's ridiculous. But you have 10% churn every month then no matter how much money you spend on the top of the on the top of the funnel you're never going to be able to hold enough water you're never going to be able to keep enough customers cuz they're all leaving and so so many times i see founders who have this leaky bucket and instead of slowing down fixing the leaks in the bucket figuring out why the customers are leaving solving the churn problem and then and having the patience to then once the bucket is no longer leaking pour on the top of the funnel with advertising, marketing, sales, et cetera. They're just, oh, we're going to spend a bunch of money, then we'll go raise our next round. More money, we'll solve it. And here's the math that many founders don't understand. And I'll, I'll use an example of Sure Payroll. So Sure Payroll is a company that we started back in 2000, and it was the first internet payroll company in the country. And, and Sure Payroll had really pretty good churn numbers. As a matter of fact, we had, we've serviced small businesses and the rate at which small businesses left us was smaller than the rate at which small businesses as a whole go out of business. Wait a minute. All the ones that go out of business have to leave you. And then some have, you have to have screwed up some, like, how can that be? And it turned out we were very deliberate in that we focused on um, some areas of small businesses that had a smaller than normal churn. So for example, we got great success early on with um, 
insurance agents. You probably know that, you know, somewhere near where you grew up, there was an Allstate agent. It was a little strip mall and there was a little thing and it's been there for 30 years and it'll be there for the next 30 years. They never go out of business, right? Well, we figured that out. So we did a deal. We had Allstate, we had State Farm, we had Northwest Mutual, we had all of those independent agencies as customers. And they had almost zero churn because of going out of business, right? So we had relatively low churn. Let's call it one and a half percent per month as a round number. I think it actually got a little lower than that, but call it one and a half percent per month. So at the point at which today, Sure Payroll has, and I don't know because we sold it a while ago, but I'm guessing 100,000 companies on the platform, that means that 1,500 are leaving every month, one and a half percent, right? Doesn't sound that big until you realize a salesperson, a single salesperson can sell about 15 new customers a month, at least they were when I was running it, which means you need to have 100 salespeople just to not go backwards. Your first 100 salespeople are just selling the 1,500 that you need to not go backwards in your number of customers. And your 101st sales rep is the first one who's getting you a net new customer. Churn, and that's with really low churn numbers. When you're tiny and we had 100 customers, we didn't care. We lost one big deal, right? But when you got to 100,000, that very low churn rate meant I needed 100 sales reps just not to go backwards. So it's so important that you fix that leaky bucket. If that had been 10% churn, we would have lost 10,000 customers a month, which would be ridiculous. We never would have gotten there, which would mean we'd have needed a, uh, you know, almost 1,000 sales reps just to not go backwards. And you could never, you'd never stay in business. So churn is, is something that early entrepreneurs don't always think about. They don't realize the impact. It's like a headwind and um, fix the leaky bucket before you spend a lot of money on customer acquisition. And what's your kind of advice for when to sort of stop and assess your retention rates? Is it after six months of being sort of commercially viable? Is it 12 months? You know, what is sort of the first time that you would say founders should sit down or should they constantly be doing it? I'm just curious when you think they should really sit down and figure this out. I think you should constantly be doing it. So I'm a huge fan of building a financial model even before you're operating. And by a financial model, I mean a bottoms up model that gets to not not just, oh, I think I'm going to have 10 customers this month and 20 next month and 30 the month after, but actually goes to the next level. What is driving your customer growth? Is it marketing spend? Is it the number of sales reps? Is it the conferences you go to, the trade shows? And actually modeling out, oh, every trade show I go to gets me on average five customers. Every conference gets me seven. A salesperson can get me 15 a month. How many sales reps do I have? How many? And this bottoms up model so that you understand the levers you have to pull to grow your business. If you do that, and each month you update the model with the results from the month before, as you close out each month, you will become smarter and smarter and smarter. And you'll say, oh, I thought it was going to be seven customers per trade show. It turns out it was only three. That's so valuable. Like if you're intellectually honest with yourself about what's working and what's not working, that gives you the ability to make smarter decisions about driving your business. Without a model, without making assumptions, without writing it down and comparing it to what you do, you don't get any smarter. Like, oh, I'll try some stuff, right? I believe everything you do as an entrepreneur should be very purposeful. And I tell entrepreneurs that everything you do should have a numeric objective goal. We're spending $10,000 on this trade show. We want to get seven new customers. 
And if you get six, you declare the trade show a failure. Now, the next time you could come back and say, this time I think we're only going to get six and here's why. And you could set new parameters, but be intellectually honest, have a numeric objective goal. And what I hate is when entrepreneurs come to me and they're showing me something, they say, oh, we've got a new MVP. So what are you testing with the MVP? Like, oh, we want to see how customers like it. That's not a numeric objective goal, right? Now you could say, oh, we do an NPS score uh, survey of all of our customers and we want to see if our NPS score in the new site goes from 20 to 40. That would be a numeric objective goal about how people like it. But set numeric objective goals. Comes back to coaching and this whole idea, like, you know, when I used to run marathons, I set a goal. I wrote it down. I told anybody who cared about it what it was so that it drove me to want to be better and to want to exceed my goal. Set your goals. And that gets to, I think, a point that a saying that I've heard in the past um, revolves around financial projections from early stage startups. Um, some people I've heard say, you know, it doesn't matter. They're always sort of, you know, finger in the air, just pure guesses. But over time, as I've gotten more reps and I've spent more time in VC and I've talked to people on the show, um, up first, I'm curious about your sort of um, perspective on what to look for in financial per uh, projections as a venture capitalist, um, what you look for and how you sort of um, incorporate them into your diligence of a company. Yeah. So I will make a very important distinction here between financial projections and a financial model. Projections are the output of the model. Projections are three years from now, we're going to do 10 million in revenue. And they're not worth the paper they're printed on. The only thing I know for sure is they're wrong, right? Could be higher, could be lower. Um, the financial model, this Excel spreadsheet that goes bottoms up, how many reps I have, how much I spend on marketing, what my cost per click is, what my book, and then builds up how many new customers, how many churn out the next month, right? That tool is incredibly valuable, not because it's any more accurate at predicting five years from now, but because you and I could have a conversation around it and I can understand how you think about your business, what you think is important, right? I can ask questions. Have you thought about this? Have you, and I have an idea about how you're going to operate the business. I also can see if you're actually using it every month and updating it every month with actuals, that you are getting smarter every single month. Because whatever you put down on paper for the first one, it's wrong. But to walk away and say, well, it's wrong. It's of no value. That's silly. There is so much value in there. And I, every business I have run personally, have, I have built myself a very detailed financial model from the bottoms up and run it every month. And all of the businesses, I want to see if I'm honest about this. I think all of the businesses that I'm on the board of, um, I can't think of one I'm at, has a similar model. There are various levels of sophistication. In the early stages, it's fairly simple. It might be five or six tabs in a spreadsheet. You know, as a company gets later, and more sophisticated, it could be 20, 25, 30 tabs of a spreadsheet because you have so many different nuances in your business. Don't make it too complicated. But they learn from it and they get better at projecting the future. And the reason that's so important is that surprises in business are horrible. So if I'm running my business and I expect it to be a $2 million revenue business at the end of the year, I'm going to staff for $2 million. Well, guess what? If it turns out we only do $1.5 million, I'm way overstaffed. I burn too much money. That's horrible. But it's also horrible if we did two and a half million and I'm understaffed and I don't have appropriate customer service. But if you have a model 
and you're tracking every month and you have your metrics, you're going to be able to project what tomorrow looks like with accuracy. And if it's two and a half, you're going to staff to two and a half. And if it's one and a half, you're going to staff to one and a half. Fewer surprises equals more control. As the entrepreneur, you don't like surprises. And this is the best tool I know to eliminate surprises. And if I'm an early stage founder, you know, I'm a listener of the show and I want to, um, I want to follow your advice, but I'm not sure where to start. I'm looking for resources to help me kind of um, get going on this. What would you recommend? Are there any great resources? Um, I know you've done a number of talks uh, in the past and I think some of them are recorded. Um, I just, any great resources you would recommend? Yeah, they are. And at, at the risk of uh, being a little self-promotional, I happen to have a copy of the book Levers. Um, so Levers is a book that I, I contributed a little bit to, just the fifth chapter, um, with uh, three other folks from Techstars. And um, it was really Amos and, and um, Trevor who did the lion's share of the work, but Cody and I also contributed. And it's designed to take... so. We all have been managing directors of Techstars programs over the years. And this is our best work of what does it take? What are the things that we really wish our companies that were going through Techstars had done a better job of? And it starts with what, um, what Amos calls the W3, which is, you know, who is your customer? What are they buying from you? And why are they buying it? and then takes you through KPIs and takes you through metrics. And then the last chapter is the one I wrote on the financial model. Um, I think it's a really great resource. I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's a really great resource for how to think about this stuff and give you a framework. And the book is really written as not a book you just read, but a series of workshops, literally like put down the book and go write down your W3, you know, come back in 10 minutes and then we'll discuss, you know, and uh, so, and if you can certainly, I mean, I give my talk on financial modeling 30, 40 times a year these days, Techstars programs, Kellogg, sometimes Booth, 1871, I did it at MHub yesterday, all over the place, you know, come join. I have posted a bunch of stuff on the math blog about it, there, and there are videos out on YouTube about it as well. So I think there's a fair amount of, I try to publish a lot of resources. It shocks me that there are not more people who are preaching how valuable financial modeling is in early stage. There's lots of stuff about how you model private equity deals and how you model discounted cash flow and how you, but very few people talk about the value of modeling an early stage business. It shocks me. So would you say today, now this is kind of a question I've been wondering in the past couple of months and just curious your take on it. Um, would you say there's maybe less of an emphasis on building those models, on being as diligent um, as you're describing at the earliest of stages, just because of how abundant capital seems to be um, for some of these really high growth startups at the early stages? Like, does that sort of um, phenomenon, does this market we're in impact in some ways? Do you think how diligent some founders are at the earliest of stages? Well, I don't think that's the case for the ones that are being successful. And let me take an example of one that it's unclear whether it's going to be successful or not monetarily, but let's pick on Clubhouse for a moment. And I have no association with Clubhouse. I don't know anything. I'm not an investor. I don't know anything about their actual numbers. But you know, they don't, at least as last I looked, they didn't have a revenue model yet, right? They weren't charging anybody anything for it. They weren't doing advertising. They weren't, um, but they grew incredibly fast. And they're 
number of listeners and or number of minutes listened was a proxy for revenue. Like the more we engage people, the more we'll be able to get to revenue later. Similarly to what uh, Facebook was in its early days or Twitter was in its early days, right? Eyeballs, time on site. And I am sure that they spent a lot of time thinking about what their not revenue formula was in this case, but their user formula because users engagement. And if you think about it, they did some amazing stuff with their user formula, right? One of the things was they wanted you to upload your address book. They wanted to show you everybody who's in your address book who's already on Clubhouse. If one of them was was talking, they would ping you and tell you it was mobile only. So it would they had so they were able to to send you um you know, to, to send you messages dynamically like that. It wouldn't just get put in a spam folder somewhere. I mean, they were so deliberate and so good at growth hacking. And that is ultimately what's going to drive their revenue. So it's unclear to me whether that's going to be a financially successful business in the long run or not yet. I, you know, maybe it will, maybe it won't. We'll see if they can cross over to monetization. But I am sure they had lots of spreadsheets and lots of metrics around when we get one customer, one user in, how many users does the average user draw in? What they were A-B testing like crazy to figure out what dials do we have to turn to get one customer to turn into 2.3 instead of 2.2 instead of 2.1. Like they were absolutely positively, they had a model. It just didn't have dollars and cents. It had minutes listen, number of active users, monthly active, daily active, and they were maniacal about that. That's a great that's a great analog. And I think that's that's a great counter to my to my question. I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, And yeah, it remains to be seen. I'm really excited kind of to see what's next for them. Um, I'd love to in our remaining time, touch on tech stars a little bit. Just we've had some people on from 1871 in the past. We've had plenty of people on from, you know, Booth and Kellogg. But I'd love to talk a little bit about tech stars, you know, what that program really provides founders who may be listening and considering applying in the future. Um, just love to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, so Techstars is a worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs. And it started in Boulder, Colorado by David Cohen with this idea that if I took 10 startups and I put them in a room together, that I could then get critical mass, that I'd get some mentors to come in and visit them and help them. And then I'd get some angels to come around and see them at a demo day and maybe they'd invest in them and we'd create something magical that was from the community that was created out of it. And literally in 2007, it was this idea and 10 startups. I first encountered it. Um, I had some students who were in my Northwestern class in 2008 who were struggling in Chicago. We tried to get them some capital. We got them like 25,000 of seed capital of, of, uh, angel capital and they it was enough they could work for the summer on their idea was around music and the internet and they were really struggling and there weren't the resources here and then in april of 2009 they got into techstars boulder and they packed up into david's vw and they drove out to boulder and i watched firsthand what happened when they went through this program with nine other companies um and how that it just gave them this incredible support network. It gave them seed capital. It introduced them to investors. They, uh, you know, they got on the stage at Demo Day at um, the Boulder Theater and they were asking for $300,000 in in their first round. This was a while back. Those were normal uh, seed rounds back then. They uh, had a line of investors waiting to talk to them and raised over a million dollars. The company was called Next Big Sound. And it was that, day that there were a handful of us from Chicago 
in Boulder to watch this that said, wow, we really want to do this in Chicago. Another quick fact, there were 10 companies in Boulder. They had just opened a second location, which was Boston. They had nine companies in Boston. And that year, those 19 companies, five were from Chicago. So Chicago is 1% of the U.S. population, but it was over 25% of the Techstars population. We rock. Except they all left Chicago and they didn't come back. So a handful of us got together. We reached out to David Cohen and Brad Feld and said, hey, can we do Techstars in Chicago? Um, David Cohen came out. We had a meeting in the old CEC offices with David Weinstein before 1871 existed. And we met with him and he basically said, you know, we're going to be opening New York and Seattle. It's way too much for us. We're too busy. But you should do it. You just can't call it Techstars. We'll help you. Here are best practices. Here are some of our docs. And they were very much give first and helped us with no expectation of return. And so we created Accelerate Labs. We opened in 2010. That was our first class. We had our demo day at the House of Blues. It was amazing. Um, and uh, we ran it as Accelerate Labs for three years, 2010, 11, and 12. And then at the end of 2012, Brad Feld was out here. He saw what was happening. He saw 1871 had just opened. Um, he saw the companies that were coming out of here. And he said, we, Techstars, really want to have a presence in Chicago, but we don't want to compete with you. Will you join forces? And so we said, of course, because it's going to give us a bigger network. And so we joined and became Techstars Chicago for 2013 through today. And um, But Techstars now has, I think it's about 55 programs across the globe. And so that's, you know, it, over 500, 600 companies a year going through this program. Some of them run multiple programs a year, and some of them are now taking 12 companies instead of 10. And it's an incredible network. It had the first IPO that came out of an accelerator that was SendGrid, which, by the way, I saw a pitch at the Boulder Theater next to Next Big Sound in 2009. Um, and uh, so, um, and has had... You know, 18 unicorns, 21 unicorns. I can't keep up anymore. Um, amazing results coming out of it, but the network, the people it has it has built is phenomenal. And so, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, it's a place to go to learn and to go through 90 days of intensive boot camp, mentorship, learning, exposure, network. But if you're a returning entrepreneur, and we've had many, many entrepreneurs who've taken multiple companies through Techstars. Well, wait a minute, you went through Techstars already once. Why would you go through again? And that's because of the value you get of the network and the people and the mentors and the process that even very successful multiple-time entrepreneurs, when they start their next company, are coming back and applying and going through Techstars a second time with a second company because the process is so valuable to them. That's amazing. I did not know that that founding story. Uh, that's incredible. Um, yeah. Troy, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time and, and hopping on the show. Um, this has been amazing. If, if people want to follow you, if they want to learn more about math, um, visit sort of, you know, your guys' page. Where, where can they go to follow you sure. and follow Math's story? Of course. So mathventurepartners.com. Very easy. That's our uh, website. The blog has new content all the time. I post a bunch of videos. We have over 40 videos on there. Little, little short, most of them are little short things uh, to help entrepreneurs. Um, there's lots of other content. Um, follow me on Twitter at Troy Hennikoff. Um, I do do open office hours every Friday. I post the link on Twitter every once in a while. I, I'll give it to you so you can post it in the show notes if you want. Um, I, uh, I forget to post it on Twitter, but um, feel free if you think I can be of help. 
I do a bunch of half hour slots every Friday morning. They fill up fast, but uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody who I can be helpful to. And I can personally attest those, some of those videos that you post are not just great for entrepreneurs. You have one on uh, how to write a forwardable email, which is a fan favorite of mine. And I've used it now ever since I saw it. So um, it's all great content. Troy, thanks so much for hopping on. This has been a blast. Can't wait to talk to you sometime again in the future. Thanks, Matt. It's been fun. See you soon.